questions at this time, you're dismissed to kick. If you have your Bible this morning, please turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. I'll be starting in verse 13 this morning. Uh, now, there's something that I like to think that I've gotten better at as I've aged and matured, uh, but I am a natural-born complainer. And I, like I said, I, I think it's something that, that God has worked on in me and, and helped to improve in me, but sometimes I just can't help myself. And, and most of the time, it, it's satisfying to just kind of save my peace about a, a situation and, and let it move on. Uh, but every now and then, there's an, an, an injustice that's just so grievous uh, that action must be taken. And so most recently, my biggest complaint uh, was with my internet provider. And, and let me just kind of build my case for a minute so you can understand where I'm coming from on this. I had been a loyal customer of a, a certain provider. I won't, I won't buzz market here. Uh, but, but I had been a loyal com- customer for five years, and I'd always paid my bill, bill on time, and I'd been patient with the occasional outage. But uh, this time, this, you know, it was a bit too much. And so in this particular instance, I noticed that my... Uh, signal was dropping off repeatedly at my house, and so I called uh, the company, and they sent out a tech to look at it, and when they got there, uh, they assessed that the problem was on my end, you know, with my equipment, and so they charged me $75 to come and look at it, and so at that point, my options were to have them drill a a hole through my house to put a a jack, like two feet from another jack, or to have them come come back another day so they could crawl through the attic and charge me another $75. But I had a solution for this because I had heard out there, uh, you know, people having problems with you maybe their, their TV provider, the internet, inter, internet provider, and they would call and you threaten to cancel service. And, and the companies would just fall all over themselves uh, to get you to stay. And they'd offer you lower prices and better packages. And so I thought, okay, you know what, I've, I've got this. I'm going to call and give them a chance to make this right. Uh, and so they refused. I thought, well, you know, I really didn't want to have to do this, but it's time to pull out the big guns. Uh, after five years of loyal service, I think the time has just come for me to, to cancel my service. And I thought, yeah, you know, I got them on the ropes. This is it. And they said, well, we're sorry, Mr. Hotchkiss, to hear that. Have a great day. Oh, that, like, wait, that's, that, that, that's not how this is supposed to work. You're just supposed to fall all over me. You're supposed to, to beg me to stay. You're supposed to offer me better offerings and, and none of that. And so... Uh, I've, I've now switched to a different provider and everything is good, but uh, sometimes when you complain, it doesn't go quite the way you want. In this fifth and final week that we've been in this book of Malachi through this sermon series uh, that we've called Return to Me, uh, in our passage this morning, Israel is leveling complaints against God. But like me, it doesn't go quite the way they would expect. We've kind of gone through this book of Malachi and this question-answer format as God brings up a charge against Israel and they bring to him a question about that and he spends the passage explaining uh, him explaining the answer to that question and so the question this morning is what have we said against you God brings the charge against Israel for speaking arrogantly arrogantly against him and so they ask what have we said uh, well, let's read it verse 13 it says you have spoken arrogantly against me says the Lord Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about it like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Now looking at this passage, 
Uh, I, I struggled with the sermon with it this week, uh, not because it's a diff- uh, particularly difficult passage, but because it's similar accusations uh, to the ones that we looked at in our third week in this series. You might remember if you were here at the end of chapter 2, Israel had returned from exile in Babylon with the highest of hopes for their future. You know, from this point forward, everything was going to be great. They had learned their lesson. They had learned from their disobedience and immorality and idolatry. And I'm sure that they planned to return back to their homeland with prosperity and fortune. Coming back home would mean that everything would be better, that the struggle was over. But in many ways, things were now worse. They look at all the nations around them. They look at their overlords, the the Persian military, the Persian kingdom, and they see their prosperity. They see these nations that don't worship God or don't respect God or don't fear God, and their lives are seemingly so much better as a result. These who do not fear God or worship God are living in luxury while His people are trying to rebuild their lives. And so Israel, at the end of chapter 2, begins to grumble against God, to speak against Him. And they say things like, all those who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and He is pleased with them. They say even though they're evil, even though they don't follow God's ways, God must be pleased with them because look how much better their lives are than ours are. And so again, at the end of this book, uh, they bring these same similar charges against God. They say, you know, serving you is of no benefit. It is a gainless exercise. We serve and we serve and we devote our lives to you and still our lives are not prosperous. Still we have nothing to show for it. And they continue, you know, what's worse are those who are evil, those who have schemed and robbed and cheated and have shown no regard for God. Those are the ones that are flourishing. And so because we've kind of already covered this complaint back in chapter 2, this idea of those who wicked, you know, why do the wicked prosper? Uh, I wanted to focus not necessarily on that issue this morning, but rather specifically on the idea of how we complain to God. Sometimes, you know, when we complain to God, we do so in a way that mimics or, or mirrors what Israel is doing in this arrogant way. But there is a way to faithfully complain. This charge that God has brought against them is this idea that you have spoken arrogantly against me. And I want to look at what that means. You know, most of us would never dream about speaking arrogantly against God. You know, we pray to Him and we praise Him and we love Him. We would never dream of, of saying anything against Him. Most of us would, would probably say that God, following God has, has brought great benefit to our lives. That we wouldn't even agree with the claims of Israel. You know, we've seen Him transform our lives and empower our lives and restore our lives. We, we've seen, yes, evil people prosper, but that doesn't often lead us to the same place that it does Israel. But if we're being honest, there are times uh, when we have wrestled with God, when we, when we have struggled with things that have happened in our lives. And when this happens, we, we often think that the good Christian response is, you know, everything happens for a reason. Or who are we to question God? Or His ways are higher than our ways. And while there's nothing wrong with these statements you know, at, at face value, all of them seem to communicate the same basic idea. You know, hush up and don't bother God with your problems. You know, God is God and you are not, and so let Him do what He wants. Don't say anything to Him about it. And many of us probably grew up with the mentality that it was wrong to voice our concerns or our questions or our frustrations or our doubts with God. 
maybe out of fear that we would be considered speaking arrogantly, just like those in Malachi's day. But I think the overwhelming counsel the majority of Scripture shows us that God wants us to come to Him in all circumstances. He wants us to come to Him and and lay before Him our concerns even when we're frustrated or when we're hurting. And there's even kind of a, a Bible word for this. It's the word lament. Maybe that's a word you've heard before, maybe it's not. Uh, it's the, the word where we get the, the book of the Old Testament, Lamentations. This book where Jeremiah is crying out to God, grieving over the situation of Israel. And this lament is a word that uh, we see a lot through Scripture. It's a concept we see a lot through Scripture. It's this idea of this extreme grief over the way things are. You, you see somebody in the Bible these times where people are so grieved that they tear their clothes and they put on sackcloth and ashes and they sit in the dirt. That's an idea of, of lamenting. I remember when I was in college receiving terrible family news and just laying face first on the floor of my dorm room. And when you're desperate enough to lay face first in a guy's dorm, uh, that's a lament. You know, this idea of you're so broken, you're so grieving that everything else fades away except for your grief. And I think we can learn something about what it means to lament faithfully. Often as Christians, we have this idea that that it is unfaithful or or disobedient to bring our concerns or complaints to God. But this idea would be foreign in Scripture, especially when you look at the Psalms. In fact, this idea of lament is the largest category of Psalms. Often when we read psalms, we do so because of their praise, or their wisdom, or their celebration, or because of their their prophecy. But more than anything else, the psalms are God's people looking at the world around them and grieving to Him about it. And so one psalm in particular, I think, shows us what it means to lament to God. It's Psalm 73, uh, and it's written by a man named Asaph. And if you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to write Psalm 73 uh, down in your notes so that you can take a chance to read it this week because I think it exemplifies for us what a true lament looks like. In verse 1 of Psalm 73, Asaph, this writer, he says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. He says, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are strong and healthy. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Verse 12, he says, This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. Asaph is saying, yes, God is is good to Israel, but as for me, you know, in my particular instance, God is good, but I feel like I have been through the ringer. And I have envied the evil because they live good lives, and they're rich, and they're healthy, and their lives are easy. And this goes on for, for 26 verses. And so the question came to my mind when reading what Asaph says. When he says almost the exact same thing that Israel does in Malachi's day, the question that came to mind is why is Israel rebuked while Asaph is included as an example of faithfulness? And I think the answer is in the conclusion of that psalm. In the final verse, Asaph says, Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. 
I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all of your deeds. Asaph looks at the world around him, and he says, God, this doesn't seem right. I see evil around me, and, and I see that their perpetrators of evil are flourishing, but in the end, he says, God, I will hold to your promise, and I will recommit myself to you. And I think the question that emerges from this idea of lament is when we go through tough times, will we continue to be faithful? That's the difference between Israel's lament and Asaph's, is that Israel believed that they were entitled to God's blessings as a result of their service. Israel looks at their situation, the circumstances around them, and they say, God, what gives? You know, what's going on here? I thought the deal was that if I scratch your back, you scratch mine. If I serve you, you bless me. If I follow you, you respond and make my life painless and give me the stuff that will make me happy. And so while they lament and they grieve and they complain, they aren't lamenting about their circumstances, but rather about God's character. Asaph, on the other hand, says, I see the injustice around me. I see the prosperity of evil. I see the better circumstances that they are living in. But regardless, God, I will serve you faithfully. And so where do we fall on this spectrum of faithfulness? Do we serve God to gain something or do we serve him because we know that he is good despite our circumstances? Malachi continues, and speaks of a group in Israel who have remained faithful like Asaph did. Verse 16, it says, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. As I read this passage in Malachi for the first time, uh, it was kind of an unexpected gem. Here in the midst of this rebuke against an unfaithful people, God speaks to a group who has remained true and faithful and pure. And that doesn't mean that they didn't lament at the tragedies around them. It doesn't mean that they, wondered, they didn't wonder where God was at the hard times. It meant that through all of that, they had maintained their trust that God would make it right. And the reason this, I, I call this an unexpected gem is because we find in this passage a profound truth nestled in among a rebuke, one that we don't often think about. Have you ever wondered you know, what God gets out of all of this? I mean, we know what we get. God promises us blessing, and He promises us restoration and transformation. He promises that everything in the, in the end will be made right if we devote ourselves to Him. But what does God get out of all of this? Why does God bother dealing with us? Why go through the trouble? I mean, yes, we say it's because He loves us, but why does He even love us? I mean, here Malachi says, we are God's treasured possession. What is your most treasured possession? The way to answer this is, aside from family or pets or any living thing, if your house was on fire and you had opportunity to grab one thing, what would it be? Maybe it's a family photo album or an heirloom that's been passed down. Maybe it's a priceless work of art. If God 
had to run for something in the fire, the thing he would run for is you. And this is what Israel had forgotten. They looked at the world around them and they thought, God must not really love us because we don't have it as good as they do. But when we lament, God listens. And He responds and He makes note of those who have remained faithful because the day is coming when the truth will be brought to light. Chapter 4, verse 1, the end of the book. Malachi says, Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked, there will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. God promises that one day everything will be made right. And all of the iniquities we see and all of the evil that we see, All of the unrighteousness, all of the evil gain, all of it will be done away with and destroyed. But for those who remain faithful, it will be a time of healing and a time of great joy. God even speaks of a sign of this day's coming. He says He will send Elijah ahead of time. Jesus, looking at this later in the New Testament, will tell us that this Elijah that God was referring to was John the Baptist. The one who came and paved the road for Jesus to come. But what I find most interesting about this pronouncement of judgment is that in it, God promises justice against those who do evil, and He promises healing and joy for the righteous. But right after this verse, God is silent for 400 years. God says, The day is coming when I will make everything right, and then He doesn't speak again in divine revelation for 400 years. Between Malachi 4.6 and Matthew 1.1, God doesn't give any divine revelation for four centuries. And maybe right now you're in a season of life when you're looking for answers. Maybe you're looking for justice in your own life and maybe you're wondering, God, where are you? You know, Why aren't you speaking? I've held true to your promise, but you don't seem very quick on delivering it. You know what I remember the most about the day my son Chandler was born? I remember waking up at 5 a.m. and I remember checking into the hospital and I remember playing cards while we waited and I remember helping Kelsey through the labor. You have no idea how bad my hand was hurting as she squeezed it. She doesn't understand. But the thing that I remember about that moment and will always remember is this one. For 400 years, God was silent until a baby cried in a manger, and it was the sound of hope. 
because God hadn't forgotten about us. He hadn't left us in our oppression and hardship. He hadn't been silent to the laments of his people. No, God had heard their cries, had heard our cries, and he came down to experience it with us. He came to experience our condition to show us a better way to bear our burdens and our pains and ultimately to bear our sins in his body on the cross and to die in our place. Maybe this morning you feel like God isn't listening. You've been faithful, you've lamented prayerfully and and faithfully, you've been looking for hope on the horizon, but you just don't see it coming. And I don't know why God hasn't answered you yet. But I want to encourage you that God is not silent. That He is silent no more. That a day is coming when He will return, not as a baby, but as a victorious King. So the question that we must ask ourselves is, are we ready? I want to encourage you, if you're going through a difficult time, to lament. It's okay to grieve. It's okay okay to cry out. It's okay to wonder why. When we come to the conclusion that God is a God who can be trusted. I want to encourage you in the difficulty to remain faithful. To remain true. To make sure that your name is written in that scroll of remembrance. I want to encourage you to get ready because he's coming. The Bible tells us that one day day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And I have to think how much better it must be to take that knee now than on the day when it's too late. So this morning, if you have never taken a knee before Jesus and submitted to your life to his lordship, his kingship, accepted him as your savior, we want to help you with that. I'll be up front. Some of our elders will be in the back. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you about what it means to give your life to Christ and to live a life that is faithful even in the midst of difficulty. Throughout this book, we've seen God go back and forth with Israel in question and answer. But time and time again, we've seen God prove himself trustworthy and faithful. And in every answer to every question, God says, you have my word, you have my promise, trust me. Let's trust him. Pray with me, please. Father God, I'm thankful for the time that we've had these past five weeks to go through this little book at the end of the Old Testament, one that we often kind of skip over or it gets lost in the shuffle of these little minor prophets in the back of the Old Testament, but one that holds so much truth for our lives. God, I'm thankful for the question and answer that we've seen back and forth between your people and you. And we've seen that time and time again you are vindicated because you are true and trustworthy. God, I pray uh, for those in this room that are enduring a difficult time right now. Maybe they're grieving over a loss or, or grieving over a situation that they can't overcome on their own. They've prayed, they've cried out, and nothing seems to change. God, I pray that you would help them to remain faithful. I pray that you would help them in their lament, in their grief, to cry out to you, 
to express everything they're feeling, to pour out their hearts to you in total and open honesty, but come to the conclusion that Asaph did. That despite all of the grief, all of the things we see wrong with the world, still we trust you. God, we pray for your return. We know that you have promised that you will come again for your church, for your people. And God, we pray, please come quickly. But in the meantime, we pray that you would give us the courage and empower us to spread your good news to people who need to hear it. People who, if you were to come right now in this instant, would not be spending eternity with you. God, I pray that you would burden our hearts with lost people so they may, they may know you and have the hope of eternity with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Our great Savior, our Lord, the one who died and was raised to life again on our behalf. In his name we pray. Amen.